This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, I'm Mary C. Curtis, and this is Equal Time. When she was a college freshman in Durham, North Carolina, interning at the local district attorney's office, Kristen Henning got her first vision of juvenile court justice when she observed eight boys, mostly Black and Latino, escorted single file down the hall. The imagery of slavery was unmistakable, she said, with metal handcuffs on their wrists connected to shackles on each ankle. It was that day she knew she wanted to go to law school and fight for children. With more than two decades doing just that, she's lost none of her shock and outrage. Now, Henning, an award-winning and nationally recognized trainer and consultant on the intersection of race, adolescence, and policing, is professor and director of the Juvenile Justice Clinic and Initiative at the Georgetown Law Center. Her book, The Rage of Innocence, How America Criminalizes Black Youth, uses her experiences, backed up by data and research, to paint an alarming picture. Whether it comes to music, dress, or the boundary-testing behavior common to all adolescents, discriminatory treatment by police and institutions from the courts to schools has created a world where Black children don't get to be children. The trauma that inflicts on a generation and their families has implications for the country. Henning's work could not be timelier, as criminal justice reform targeting racial inequities is a national topic of discussion and dispute. So welcome to Equal Time, Kristen Henning. Thank you so much for having me, Mary. I appreciate it. Oh, no. I I wanted to talk with you about when you first started to put together just how pervasive discrimination against Black and Latino children is, uh, and and how many allies did you have, and how many folks just sort of accepted it as the way it is and always has been? So I have been representing children in the nation's capital for uh, 25, almost 26 years, and in that entire time, I have only represented four white children. Um, every other child I have represented um, has been an African-American child. So that would lead people to believe that either Washington, D.C. has no white children or that white children don't commit crime, and neither one of those would be true. And so it's really after you know doing this work for 25, 26 years, you have to stop and ask yourself, why is this happening? Is this happening, um, these extreme racial disparities happening in other states in the country? And what kind of impact are these disparities having on Black and brown children, psychologically, physically, educationally? Um, And so, you know, are there uh, allies in this? Uh, Yes, there are people who are on the ground working with young people of color 
um, who see this pervasive criminalization, over-policing, hyper-surveillance of of Black children. Um, But at the same time, many folks who practice in local courts in cities throughout the country have begun to take it for granted. All they see are black and brown children or black and brown children are so disproportionately overrepresented, they just take it for granted. And you go about the business of doing what you've been hired to do, even among defense counsel, you know, doing the work of defending the individual children without stopping to think about the broader systemic implications about what could it possibly mean that we have so many black and brown children in courts. Yeah. Now, you know, in your book, uh, you have all your examples and you do back it up with data, statistics and studies. So to those people who say, well, you know, it's just black kids, they just commit more crimes. What, what, uh, what does the data show? Uh, Several things. One is that um, very few children of any race commit the types of criminal behavior that most of us fear, murder, rape, um, physical assault, um, violent physical assault, um, things of of that nature. Um, The statistics show that we're talking like, you know, uh, 9% of the crimes um, uh, that for which children are arrested are of that level of of seriousness. Um, And, you know, maybe 20% in some, in other states, But that means that like 80% of what you find children in, especially in juvenile courts across the country for, are for low level, um, you know, things that are technically labeled felonies, but that are truly adolescent behaviors. What do we know about children? That they're impulsive, reactive, emotional. They don't think ahead to the consequences. They take risks. They're sensation seekers. So, so much of the behavior that we see um, in juvenile courts, up to 80% of that behavior in juvenile court is, is that kind of normal adolescent behavior that can be dealt with in ways other than traditional law enforcement methods, um, but that we don't do that. So that's the first thing that I say. The second thing that I say is that even when we have moments when there is a temporary uptick in crime and real crime, and we might be in one of those moments, it is really important that we not repeat the errors of history. One of the errors was in the 1990s when there was a temporary uptick in crime and we um, launched into a super predator error led or guided by some pseudoscientific myth that predicted that black children were going to run amok and rape, maim, and kill all the people in the country. Well, guess what? You know, it, it, that myth, the super predator myth, turned out to be false and never came to pass. Juvenile crime rates plummeted um, in the years after uh, that super predator myth. Um, And and so we've got to be careful about becoming reactive. Um, And then the third and final thing I'll say about that is even again, when we have serious crime, there is research demonstrating best practices for how to deal with those uh, young people. Um, And I got to tell you, the best practice 
practices don't suggest that we send them off to adult court and lock them in prisons in solitary confinement, but that instead that we adopt rehabilitative strategies that really nurture and support young people, um, rehabilitate young people with mental health resources, vocational opportunities, um, and the like. And so my plea through this book, through these stories and data and, and research is to urge folks to treat Black children like children um, by not criminalizing them for behavior that's normal adolescent behavior. And even when they commit serious crime, those few children who commit serious crime, that we give them the same grace and rehabilitation that we would give white children. Yeah, well, what does, when you say like 80% is just adolescent behavior, like what are you talking about some of the behaviors that are criminalized when it comes to Black children that are just the boundary testing of adolescents in general? So we're talking about um, children who uh, maybe back talk, right? What do kids do? They talk back to adults, right? And it gets interpreted for young Black children as a threat of violence and aggression when really what it is is adolescent aggressive speech that all children of all races engage in. And not just in the United States, but all over the world, right? So we have that. We have um, children getting into school fights. No, I don't want any kid, you know, getting into a fight. But what instead we should be doing is adopting um, strategies and learning curricula, social, emotional, emotional learning uh, uh, curricular in schools that teaches conflict resolution and restorative justice. You see children, you know, look, in my book, I give an example of a young girl, a 17-year-old girl who snatches her boyfriend's cell phone and begins to walk away. She, As she's walking away, she's scrolling through the cell phone to see whether or not he has been texting with another girl because he thought she was cheating on him. Let me cheating on her. Let me be clear. A school resource officer arrested that child. Okay. Um, and she was charged with robbery. Robbery is a serious felony under the you know, FBI, you know, uh, index of crimes. I mean, it's that kind of thing. There are just examples upon examples. You know, no, we don't want our kids doing any of these things, but they're not the types of criminal behavior that warrant uh, you know, arrest, embarrassment, school disruption. And it's so interesting. They often say, well, we, you know, we needed to arrest her because she was being disruptive. She was in the hallway. And the only thing that was disruptive was the police officer arresting her and dragging her out, um, you know, down the hallway. That was the disruption. So there's so many examples like that. Um, one that I share in the book and that, you know, really you see all across the country. Yeah, and you you talk about that example, and then you compare it to so many white young people, and you say you have very few white clients get a pass, and they also get to be young longer. So uh, is there an example, too, that stands out particularly and that you include in your book that illustrates this uh, disparate sort of treatment that is exacerbated in the juvenile justice system and, and to show what it looks like? Right. So, I mean, one, I could give an example on the on the sort of low end 
um, you know, adolescent behavior. And then even on the serious end, when white children do very serious crimes. But I open the book with one of these um, incidents that is really a normal adolescent behavior. I open the book with the, my client named Eric. Eric was a Black 13-year-old boy who on a Saturday night was watching television. He sees someone making a Molotov cocktail. And he says in his 13-year-old brain, I want to make something that looks like that. And so he goes into the kitchen, he grabs a glass bottle, and he begins to pour in liquids without researching what a Molotov cocktail is. He pours in liquids like bleach, pine saw, um, things that are not flammable. He then takes a piece of toilet paper and runs it from the inside of the bottle to the out and closes the cap. Now, we know that that toilet paper is not going to um, serve as a wick. It's going to burn out before it reaches the cap. He puts the bottle in his book bag. This is a Saturday night. He forgets all about it. Monday morning, his mother drives him to school. He puts his bag through the, the metal detector and a school resource officer says, hey, what is this? To which he immediately responds, oh, that's nothing. You can throw it away. Little does he know that's the beginning of a huge ordeal in his life. The police come, the fire department comes, they race, they grab him and pull him out of his class and arrest him. And he ultimately um, has to endure nine months of criminal or of juvenile court. So you asked about the white children. So sometime after Eric's story, I am at an academic conference and I tell Eric's story. And um, after I speak, a white woman comes up to me and she says, you know what? My son did the exact same thing. And I say to her, what happened? And she says, they put him in advanced chemistry class. Ah. So just nurturing that creativity, nurturing that the, the educational spirit um, uh, of that young man, unlike Eric, who ends up in court for nine months, gets you know suspended from school, suspended from all his extracurricular activities. One other example, and I'll just actually, you know, I'll just tell you, we all know we've heard in the news about Kyle Rittenhouse, right? And very much putting race and politics aside, I mean, this is the quintessential sort of adolescent behavior. You know, you know, he's a 17-year-old boy who um, is sort of taken by this need, this call to come, you know, across state lines and protect the businesses, right? Um, during this Black Lives Matter protest, right? Um, and so he gets in a car, right? Drives over state line, meets a friend who has bought him, an older friend who has bought him as a weapon. His friend's father has stored the weapon for him, you know, loaded and they pull it out. And he's walking through the streets at 17 years old with a, uh, a, a rifle <laughs> strapped to his body, right? With minimal expertise or experience in, in using the weapon, even though he had a hunting, you know, license, but it's all minimal. So here's my point here. It's the quintessential impulsive behavior, um, doing what he thinks his friends are doing, what he, what his friends are telling him to do. He's not thinking ahead to the consequences, right? He's ill-equipped to navigate these circumstances. And then he gets himself into this trouble and he ends up killing people, two people and injuring another. And what happens afterwards? One, he gets due process, right? He doesn't get shot dead in the street like Tamir Rice did for having a toy gun. So he gets due process. He also gets mercy. 
right? And he he and his mother are essentially pleading sort of with the world in their own way to see him as a child, right? Um, you know, his mother, um, I think there's an interview in which his mom appears to be very emotional upon learning that her son is going to be tried as an adult. So there's this just deep sense of wanting everyone to see him as a kid who did something, you know, stupid or made a mistake and then ultimately got him into a situation where he, quote unquote, had to defend himself. You know, and and that's sort of the quintessential privilege of whiteness in every oh, yeah. a, a privilege of white adolescence, to be precise, right? Yes. And then you think about a Tamir Rice in less than three seconds, he's gunned down, gunned down, no due process, no mercy, no understanding. It's just painful and tragic. So I think on both ends of the extremes, the serious offenses and even on the low uh, level, you know, adolescent experimentation, we see these disparities. Oh, yes. And as I wrote about in the Rittenhouse case, nobody was saying, where's the father? What about the culture? What What? about, (laughs) yes, which the judgments are made. It's interesting also you brought that up because in the court, you know, when he cried, people did feel sorry, like, look at that kid. Now, can you talk about how Black girls and boys are perceived and how that contributes to how they are treated in the juvenile justice system or even in the schools for that matter? As Are they seen as more mature or experienced and Black girls as just more sophisticated and sexual? Absolutely, both for boys and for girls. I mean, there's been research um, uh, by Dr. Philip Atiba Goff and some of his colleagues, um, particularly around boys and the um, ways in which people, both civilians and police officers, perceive Black boys to be older than they are and significantly older than they are, like four and a half years or more older than they actually are, which has profound impacts on culpability, whether or not you look at a child and see them as dangerous, as threatening, as violent. It has a profound impact upon whether or not you use force, whether you show grace, whether you show mercy. Um, All of that matters. Similarly, with Black girls, there's been similar research out of the Georgetown's Institute Institute on Poverty and Inequality, um, looking at the way girls are perceived, and girls are perceived as older, more mature, less innocent, less in need of protection, um, purportedly more knowledgeable about sex and other adult-like things. Um, Again, um, having a profound impact, for example, on the ways in which they are disciplined um, in schools, for example. Yeah. Now, and how does this extend not just with the police, but when they get in the courts and you're representing them and in front of judges as well who are going to decide their fate? So I often talk about the sort of dehumanization of Black children and the ways in which, um, because Black children are perceived to be so much older, that, you know, it's easier, psychologically easier, even at 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 a subconscious level, to treat them and try them as an adult. And so there are extraordinary racial um, disparities. The deeper you progress through the legal system from decisions about pretrial detention, um, trial outcomes, guilt or innocent outcomes, sentencing decisions, decisions about whether to try someone, a child as an adult. And once they are tried as an adult, the nature of the and severity of the sentence, whether or not you give a child juvenile life without the without possibility of 
parole, extraordinary racial disparities at that. So that when we are willing to give white children the absolute benefit of the doubt, to take into account their life circumstances um, and the difficulties and um, provide mental health services to uh, white children at those deep end levels, Black children like Khalif Browder, who actually wasn't even convicted of a crime in New York, right? Um, But who was accused of a crime um, and then spent three years in jail awaiting trial. Much of that time is in solitary confinement, right? Um, And so really, you know, significant um, racial disparities in, in how we treat and respond even to young people who commit crimes and make mistakes. Yeah, and that Browder case is so heartbreaking in solitary and with adult in a Rikers prison. Right. Of course, he committed suicide when he came out. I mean, that Absolutely. was, um, yeah, that's stunning. Um, I want to also start, you know, I know an ACLU report I was reading earlier this year noted that while youth crime has been on the decline since the mid-90s, there persists this idea that youth are violent and that there are more arrests in schools with resource officers. So uh, how does that contribute to what's called a school to prison pipeline? Because personally, I know I could talk, I would talk back to my teachers sometimes and challenge them. And I just got sent either to the principal's office or maybe my mom was called in to say, you know, your daughter has a loud mouth. But to see some of the things that children are actually in schools where they call the resource officer instead of doing what schools usually did. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, there's, there is, um, has been a steady rise in the presence of police in schools. And I will say historically, it's worth noting that I bought into this idea that we um, uh, had our first police officers in school because parents and teachers were afraid to send their children to school after the mass shooting in Columbine, Colorado um, in 19, was it 99? Um, but if we look back historically, we recognize that the first police officers in school appeared in, um, in uh, 1939, 60 years earlier, with the first conversation about um, the possibility of, of school integration. And then the presence of, of police officers in schools increased radically in the civil rights era um, in, in the face of or in response to Brown versus Board of Education um, under the guise of being sent in to facilitate integration. But we know from those iconic photographs and from the historical record that police in fact, impeded integration. Um, And then we hit the 90s, we've got that temporary uptick in crime again, and uh, the federal government floods money into the school system to increase crime, I mean, to increase police officers. And where do those officers get sent? They get sent to schools that have a higher presence of black and brown children. So I just wanted to give that racial overlay when we think about why police are in schools in the first place. And then what's happening now is that with this proliferation of police in schools and particularly in black and brown schools, um, more police in schools means more arrest in schools and more arrest for things that previously were handled um, by teachers and school administrators. These routine discipline is now delegated to the police. And so it makes it easier teacher 
can pick up the phone or and and say, hey, officer, ring a bell, and the officer comes running down to the classroom um, for routine uh, behavior intervention um, instead of relying on school officials to do that. And so, indeed, as you said, it's children being arrested for normal behaviors, talking back. Um, there are even statutes on the books. There are laws in the book allowing police officers to arrest children for disturbing schools. Literally, it can be anything, disorderly conduct, laughing in class, anything. And so that's really problematic. You've got um, an increased use of force um, uh, against children in schools. I mean, folks will remember Shakira Murphy from South Carolina, Spring Valley, South oh, yes. Carolina, right? Who was, you know, uh, apparently looking at her phone and got ripped out of her seat by a school resource officer. And that's, that's you know, that was uh, a few years back. And there are still stories like that. There's a young girl in uh, Florida, Taylor Bracey, who was um, body slammed, you know, to the ground um, by an officer um, for, you know, getting into a school fight. No, we don't want children in fights, but we don't teach children not to fight by fighting with them, by body slamming. Yes. Right. So, yeah. And yeah, that young lady in South Carolina, too. I remember that case because I think she had had a death in the family or something. So no sense of saying, is something bothering you or can I help you? So there's actually a video, there's a documentary that was just released that gives so much more information about that. So it turns out that what she was doing, she was a student um, who had an IEP plan, an individualized education plan. And in that plan, um, and, and I apologize if I'm, I'm misspeaking, here's the part that's really important, is that she was instructed that if she had any problems with her coursework, So she was supposed to be taking a math exam and she was told, if you have any problems with your math work, you can call your assistant. She had a one-on-one aide. Mm. You could call her assistant or or even text her assistant and her assistant could come and either help her with the math or she could go to the front office and get help with the math that way. That's what she was trying to do. That was absolutely what she was trying to do. But the teacher wouldn't listen um, to her, wouldn't engage with her and called the principal who then calls the, um, you know, or either call the assistant principal who calls the, the, the security to come. Yeah. It's, it's, it's stunning. I'm just thinking quickly, uh, very quickly, my son, when he was in elementary school, got in a fight with his, one of his best friends and every, you know, they, it was a small school. Everybody knew everybody and it was really nothing. And by the end of the day, they were all at my house playing, right? which is how those things resolve (laughs) when you're a kid, you know, you forget about it in a couple of hours, but not if they drag you nowadays, he could be in prison. I, I I also, oh my God, I find it interesting. You talk about culture, how dress and hairstyle and music are seen as an assault, which is something that also adolescents do. And I think of the case, of course, because I cover Congress of Jordan Davis, who's the son of Congresswoman Lucy McBath, who was murdered in 2012 in a Florida gas station after an argument with a white man over loud music. And he was just, he wasn't law enforcement. He was just a dude, you know? And so we see so many of these stand your ground laws that give citizens power to defend themselves if they say they feel threatened. So how does that put Black youth in even more danger? Yeah, so I write a chapter in the book called Policing as Proxy for precisely sort of this conversation we're having now, which is the ways in which 
Black children are criminalized, not just by officers or law enforcement in a blue uniform, but by all civilians who are afraid without reason, without ration, um, but, you know, unreasonably afraid of Black children and who criminalize Black children either by taking matters in their own hand or by calling the police. And so, indeed, um, you know, Jordan Davis is is a, a tragic victim, like Trayvon Martin, so many people of civilians, you know, who step in and, and, and they're stepping in to police and to regulate normal adolescent behaviors. So you're talking about music, right? And mm-hmm. I talk about in the book, the ways in which um, the, the most significant central features of adolescents are criminalized, the way, the way children dress, the way children wear their hair, the music that they listen to, the friends um, that they have, experimentation with sex, all of these things that are quintessential adolescence. And so with regard to the music, you've got, you know, a child who is listening to music, listening to, you know, rap music, and uh, a white person drives up, parks next to them. They were there first, parks next to them um, and says, I don't like this thug music, turn it down. Right. You know, and Jordan Davis's friend turns it down at force. But Jordan's like like any human being, you know, resists this unwarranted intrusion in his right to be and to listen. Right. And he speaks up and says, no, turn that back up. And it becomes a verbal argument. And what happens? The white man kills him, pulls out a gun and fires point blank into the car, right? And claim stand your ground, giving just expansive freedom, right? To, uh, you know, a white man to intrude upon the black space (laughs) um, and to be, uh, and to uh, perpetuate violence. And so, and we've seen that stand your ground laws are disproportionately used to protect white um, perpetrators, right? White killers, right? Um, uh, and even more so white killers of black people. And, you know, they were never meant to protect or shield or to give an additional, uh, right of self-defense to black folks, right. Um, who are, uh, intruded upon. And so it's really tragic, all all of these ways in which both civilians and police, uh, criminalize black children. Yeah. And there were other kids in that car. And then, of course, we know the congresswoman chose to run after this. So can you speak a bit about the trauma that black and brown children and their families experience, uh, not even when it even gets to be so violent about death, but just from having to be so vigilant, so fearful, knowing that people and police fear them and may possibly act on that fear? There is a growing body of research documenting the extraordinary psychological trauma that uh, Black and Brown children experience, um, not just like you said, um, as the victim of police violence, but even living in heavily surveilled neighborhoods and being the target of frequent stops and frisks. And the research shows that children in those environments report high rates of fear, anxiety, depression, hopelessness. They're always, they become hypervigilant, meaning that they're always on guard and not um, trusting police. 
that distrust of police transfers over to other state actors. Um, and, you know, the research, you know, shows that it's not just, as you noticed, it's not even just being the direct target of those kinds of encounters, but witnessing or hearing about them in the neighborhood. So just having to worry about becoming the next victim of some form of violence, police violence, again, either in a blue uniform or by a civilian, is in and of itself enough um, to generate these levels of stress um, and anxiety. Even watching them on the internet or TV produces post-traumatic stress disorder. And we know that by um, talking to young people, and it's particularly impacting adolescents, but talking to those young people who watch George Floyd killed, you know, on, on TV or, you know, um, Mike Brown, all of that, you know, has an extraordinary impact um, on, you know, Black children. And I write a, a, a section also on sort of the Black family in the era of mass incarceration and just the extraordinary collateral impacts on Black parents, on Black siblings. And there's not enough research about the impact of these types of, of police violence and policing and criminalization of siblings on other folks in the uh, other children in the family. Um, but it's, yeah, you know, it's paralyzing. It's devastating. Yeah, and it's long-lasting. I'm a grown woman, and nobody would mistake me for anything. But if I'm at a light and a police car pulls next door, I do tense next to me. And I and I haven't done anything wrong, but I'm just like, okay, let him go. Right. <laughs> and that's, I guess, a lifetime, you know. So um, what kind of systemic reform is needed? Because you're really uh, uh, experienced in this area. And what are the implications for society if we keep things the way they are and change is not made? Yeah, um, we have to start all across the country with, and this is the hardest part, but we have to start with a cultural shift. This notion of, uh, or, or just recognizing all children as children, and that includes black and brown children who have been so disproportionately targeted. And so how do we do some of that? Um, one is that we have to be honest with ourselves and name and acknowledge our fears. Like when you walk through a park and you walk through a park and you see a bunch of white kids, you know, you don't tense up and get afraid. You walk through a park and you see a bunch of black kids you know, you're, you're nervous and tense. You have to interrogate that. Ask that. Ask yourself, what is this about? Why is there this irrational fear of Black children? So that's something about honesty um, and transparency um, and, and educating oneself about the harms that we are doing to Black children, the trauma that we are doing to Black children by fearing them in these ways and, um, and criminalizing the, them in these ways. And then we have to think about how do we overcome that for ourselves? Part of that is this notion of proximity. We hear, you know, Brian Steven talks, uh, Brian Stevenson talks about, you know, getting proximate, you know, with the, with uh, impacted, uh, you know, young people in, in this case, right? And so one of my psychologist friends said something to me um, that I've, this really stuck with me, which is that every single child needs one irrationally caring adult in their lives, mm -hmm. right? And um, a child would be better off with a team of irrationally caring adults. And so that's one way in which we get proximate. 
What are the ways in which each of us individually are really getting to know young Black children and serving and supporting and tutoring and mentoring um, young Black children? Um, and you'll see just how, how, how kids are kids. So I think that's one thing. Um, but then structurally, right, we've got, we, we, you know, look, until we have the cultural shift, which will take some time, what are some ways in which we can shift using the law? Um, and so I think we have to radically reduce the footprint of police officers in the lives of black and brown children. Um, and that means reimagining what policing looks like. For example, um, I you know, am in favor of the police free schools movement, which is not as radical as it sounds. It does not mean that we will never have access to you know, police officers to deal with extreme uh, examples um, or extreme uh, evidence of violence or crime in schools, right? But that we will be thoughtful and, um, and, and methodical about when police are necessary and relieve police officers of those tasks and duties to be quite frank that they don't wanna do anyway, which is regular adolescent disciplinary you know, functions, right? And so we need to adopt a public health approach to public safety, both in schools and in the community. That means um, access to mental health services, um, uh, uh, counselors, vocational training for young people. It means even when there is evidence of violence in particular communities and schools that we uh, look at strategies like credible messengers or violence interrupters in the community. Um, and that when young people do commit crime that we show grace and rehabilitation and, and follow and adopt those proven strategies for dealing with violent offenders. Great, great. Well, I so want to thank you, Professor Kristen Hennig, for being a guest on Equal Time. This is our first show of the new year, and I can't think of a better way to start it than talking about youth and their promise and their hope that they just get justice and support from a society. They really deserve it. Absolutely. So thank you again. Thank you. Thank you for having me and for elevating this conversation. So what's keeping me up at night? The fight for voting rights. It's not new, of course. You could say America has resembled the democracy it imagines itself to be only since the Voting Rights Act of 1965 by law expanded the franchise to all. And since then, the fight against that expansion has not abated. But in 2022, bills in states across the country have not only chipped away at access to the ballot, but also have put in place changes in how and who counts the votes. To me, the stuff of nightmares. What about you, Equal Time listeners? Hopeful or harried as the new year starts? Let me know what's on your mind by tweeting me at mcurtisnc3. And check out my columns at Roll Call. Thank you for listening to Equal Time. Please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.